Welcome back again. Today's podcast takes a dive into the world of aging research, but from a perspective of lower organisms. Now you may ask yourself, what do I have in common with something like a tiny nematode worm? And the answer to that is gene homology. In fact, Cenorhabditis elegans, or C. elegans as they are known, about 35% of their genes have human homologs, which means that a version is also found in humans. The beauty of a model like C. elegans in aging research, as you will learn in this conversation with Dr. Gordon Lithgow, is that these animals have a very short lifespan. That means that in comparison to more long-lived higher-order organisms like rodents, it's a bit more straightforward to change up the conditions and see what happens to their lifespans. You can do this more quickly and more cheaply. By way of example, you might try adding in something like even a small amount of environmental stress, which, if we're talking about heat stress, actually was shown to increase lifespan in worms when used in the right dose. A discovery that, as we'll discuss, Dr. Gordon Lithgow, today's guest, actually made in the course of his research back in 1995. But it's also practically useful for determining if certain compounds, including vitamins, may be candidates for increasing lifespan as well. This is where the Cenorhabditis Intervention Testing Program comes in. The Cenorhabditis Intervention Testing Program is a multi-institution effort sponsored by the National Institute on Aging, a division of the NIH designed to screen bioactive compounds for their ability to extend lifespan and enhance health using nematodes as a model system for potential effects. The Cenorhabditis Intervention Testing Program is actually a spin-off of another program more simply called the Intervention Testing Program, which began in the early 2000s to look at the potential for various interventions, including vitamins and pharmaceuticals and otherwise, to extend the lifespan of mice. While mice are much more genetically close to us, sharing 92% of their genome in common with us, and discoveries are thus far more likely to have eventual clinical applicability, the cost and the time involved in screening is also geometrically more expensive. Herein lies the value of doing broad screening with lower organisms like C. elegans, which can then potentially make its way up to mammal research and maybe, if we're very, very lucky, clinical research in humans. All right, having riffed on the value of research in lower organisms quite a bit, we can go ahead and get this podcast started. Quick reminder before we do that, though. This podcast was brought and paid for by amazing supporters. So in the place of the corrupting influence of more conventional advertisements, I'd like to ask you if you enjoy this podcast, you head over to foundmyfitness.com forward slash crowdsponsor. That's foundmyfitness.com forward slash C-R-O-W-D-S-P-O-N-S-O-R crowd sponsor. From there, you can pitch in a pay what you can amount. In other words, any amount that you like, even a metaphorical cup of coffee to support future episodes and the other various endeavors that fall under the found my fitness umbrella. That means all the great stuff like my being able to travel to record on location as I did in this podcast or the YouTube videos that we produce from the interviews that are loaded up with helpful definitions and citations or the original content we produce. You get the picture. All of that is made possible through this pay-what-you-can subscription mechanism whereby each person pitches in as small or as much as they like and in doing so becomes part of a community that makes cool stuff happen. So make sure to check that out once again, foundmyfitness.com forward slash crowdsponsor. Now onto the podcast with Dr. Gordon Lithgow. Hello, friends. Today I'm sitting here with Dr. Gordon Lithgow, who is a professor at the Buck Institute for Aging. One of the cool things that I really like that Gordon does is that he actually screens various compounds, both natural compounds like vitamins and minerals and other compounds to see if they potentially could be longevity compounds. And one of the ways he does this is by looking at the effects on a tiny nematode worm called C. elegans to see if there's any effect on their lifespan. So. That's right. 
Maybe you can kind of explain what are these C. elegans and. Sure. Uh, C. elegans is a, a tiny one millimeter sized roundworm. It's found in rotting fruit naturally. It's found on the backs of snails. And it's the amazing genetic system that was suggested by uh, Sidney Brenner back in the, the 60s to study neurobiology and neuro, neuronal development. Uh, in the late 80s, it was adopted by Tom Johnson and Mike Class to look at longevity. And it's a, it's a fantastic system to study aging because, well, one, it's transparent, so you can actually see the tissues aging in real time day after day. But two, it lives a very short time. It lives about 15 to 20 days. And that's the big advantage because you can go through lots and lots of experiments very, very quickly, fairly economically. And uh, therefore, you can study lots of compounds and look for, for things that extend the lifespan. Right. As opposed to, for example, people that are looking at compounds and how they affect Another model for eight, you know, in another model like mice, for example. Yeah, I mean, the, how long do they live? Well, so a mouse in the lab's living two or three years. Two or three years. And it's incredibly expensive to maintain the animals, uh, and and you know, these are million-dollar experiments to study longevity in mice. Right. Whereas with the worm, again, it's very quick, and you can study lots and lots of individuals uh, fairly economically. Yeah, it's super cool, actually. Um, started doing some, my early, early research right after I graduated from the University of California in San Diego. Before I went to graduate school, I worked in an aging lab using C. elegans. Okay, so there you go. I'm very familiar with them um, as, a, as a great model for, for aging. People fall in love with them, right? I mean, they, they actually come in and they're, they're a little worm, but before long, they're just devoted to you know, all the biology and all the interesting things that happens. I mean, you're looking down the microscope and you're seeing all sorts of interesting behaviors. You're seeing growth. You're seeing learning and memory even. Right. And then you start seeing this aging process taking over and one by one knocking back the functions that you can see. And it's, it's really dramatic when you have a mutation or a chemical compound that stops that from happening or slows it down. Uh, and, and, and people are just kind of amazed to see down the microscope a worm that's crawling around and, and behaving normally when it shouldn't be, when it should be dead. Totally. That's what sort of hooked me into this, this you know, the, basically the field of aging was looking at these worms where you, where you can get rid of their IGF-1, you know, growth signaling pathway yeah. and, and literally can make them live 100% longer. I mean, it was incredible. And to think that this, this is the same pathway that's conserved in humans, it's like, right. well, that seems very relevant, yeah. you know, so... Uh, yeah, definitely that was the, the, the thing that got me really, really interested was that just, and, and seeing it myself, seeing doing it, experiments, right? Seeing right? it in the microscope, it's so, really profound. So you do a lot of work on, um, these days you're doing a lot of work on what's known as protein homeostasis, mm -hmm. or I guess the word would be proteostasis, mm -hmm. and how that's involved in aging. And I don't, I'm not sure most people watching or listening even have any clue why protein homeostasis plays a role in aging? Well, so as you know, we, you know, we take in our proteins and we break it down into the essential amino acids and then we build our own proteins and the worm builds its own proteins and, and those proteins have a, a three-dimensional shape and that shape's important for function, of course. Uh, and during aging, the general observation is that the proteins lose their shape in, in various ways. For example, during Alzheimer's disease, the protein beta amyloid uh, loses its shape, uh, undergoes various conformational changes, becomes toxic, neurotoxic, but eventually ends up as an insoluble protein in amyloid plaques in the diseased brain. Now, that process happens in Parkinson's disease as well with a different protein, alpha-synuclein. But actually, we believe it's happening to thousands of proteins. And a few years ago, we published a paper where we showed that many hundreds, if not thousands, of proteins undergo conformational change during aging and come out of solution. And it so happens that, that those proteins are enriched for proteins that determine lifespan. 
So, so it, when you're saying out of solution, you're saying so they become they're insoluble. They become insoluble. Can you at that point say it's an aggregate? Is that technically accurate? I, I, biochemically, insolubility is related to aggregation. Precipitate, yeah, right? aggregation is a coming together of that insoluble protein yeah. in, in a single foci. So, so these you're saying these aggregations or these these insoluble proteins that are happening. You're saying hundreds of proteins that are happening with, right. with age. This is happening. Um, you know, this is this is partly because of damage that that accumulates. Correct. I mean, a lot of damage that damages DNA. So things like you know reactive oxygen species, inflammatory cytokines. These things are damaging our DNA, our proteins as well. Right. I mean, I, I mean proteins sustain lots of damage in the normal course of metabolism, but it, it's actually not too clear to us why this particular set of proteins come out of solution. Uh, mm. And that's something we're pursuing and other labs are pursuing as well. Cynthia Kenyon's lab discovered a very similar mechanism around about the same time. And, and so I think we're all really interested as to why these proteins come out of solution uh, and, and are enriched for proteins that determine lifespan. That kind of suggests that the, the protein of insolubility or misfolding or conformational change in itself has something to do with the aging process. And I think this is really important because here's a process that's been studied for, for decades in the context of neurological disease, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and so on. But if the same process is happening as in the course of normal aging, it shows a connection between normal aging and disease. And that's something I think that lots of us are interested in right now. What are the mechanisms of normal aging that are likely to accelerate age-related pathologies and disease. Right. And if this is happening in not just our neurons, if it's happening in our endothelial cells that line our blood vessels, I mean, I often think about that as another, you know, um, tissue that is prone to, you know, insoluble proteins forming. I'm not sure if that's actually Right. No, I mean, I mean there's, there's the amyloids form in lots of tissues in our body, yeah. and there's very specific diseases associated with that. But I think what we're seeing is that this amyloid formation is a, a more general aging process. It's just going on probably in most of our tissues, right. if not all, and, uh, and maybe then drives disease pathology that becomes obvious to us when, when we look at it as a disease. So it's disrupting just normal tissue function, whatever tissue that is, it's disrupting maybe mitochondrial function, just you know, right. the everyday things that are happening aren't happening as well, and this sort of can, you know lead to or be part of what we call the aging process in a way. Absolutely. And, you know, and it's not to say it's the only aging process. It clearly isn't yeah. the only thing that's changing. Everything, everything's changing. There's evidence, for example, in Alzheimer's disease that there's a, a metabolic problem that, that happens mm -hmm. before you start seeing aggregation of proteins. Mm -hmm. So who knows how all these things interact with each other, but, but it's important. I think that's, that's firmly established now that this is a, a major mechanism of aging. Right, yes. Well, I remember, um, gosh, it must have been like 12 years ago when I first read a paper of yours where I believe you may have been a postdoc because mm -hmm. you were first author on this paper. And the paper was you had found that, that um, heat-shocking worms, actually I think it was just at this early paper was a single heat shock and you would increase mm -hmm. the lifespan of the worm by like 15%. Yeah. And this was totally dependent on the production of something called heat shock proteins mm -hmm. or HSPs, which people have heard me talk about before. So, um, and then you publish again showing that multiple heat shock treatments could increase the lifespan of the worm like even more robustly. Right. So could you maybe talk for, you know, just a little bit about, you know, how heat shock is this type of hormetic stress and how this can have a beneficial sure. effects? I, I remember um, when I saw this for the first time as a postdoc and I ran into the office of my supervisor, Tom Johnson, and they said, oh, look at this. This is amazing. You stress the animals. And 
They live longer. How is that possible? And he said, oh, right, you've, you've just discovered something that John Maynard Smith published in Nature in the 1950s. Uh -huh. And he pulled this paper you know, out of his drawer, and sure enough that John Maynard Smith, the evolutionary biologist, had been, been looking at trade-offs between reproduction and lifespan. And he had stressed, in this case, flies. Uh, he stressed the flies with a heat shock, and they, and they had lived longer. And it, it was kind of amazing that this was in the 1950s, and this, this was before our understanding of molecular chaperones and stress responses. Wow. And, and, and so they probably could never put that discovery into the context of the molecular and cellular processes that were going on. And what was going on was the animals were being stressed. They're ramping up their defenses against misfolded protein. Of course, proteins misfold during the heat shock. And as a result, these, these defense systems are actually acting against the normal aging process, which is also the misfolding of proteins. So it kind of makes sense to us now that these so-called hermetic responses are, are the production of molecular chaperones, also ramping up of autophagy, the process of breaking down proteins. And beautiful paper from Malene Hansen a few yeah, weeks ago showing that autophagy, autophagy is critical for this, this response to heat shock. So uh, it's nice that things have come full circle and we've got a better understanding of what's going on there. It totally makes sense. So, I mean, if you think about it, like you said, you know, in the, in the case of heat, you know, there's lots of examples of hormetic stressors. I mean, heat's one, there's fasting, mm -hmm. there's a lot of xenobiotic, you know, compounds or xenohormetic compounds, yeah. curcumin, uh, these sort of things can, you know, they're slightly toxic in a small dose. And because of that small dose, I think dose is important. Yes. It activates, like you said, all these cellular stress response pathways that then help us deal with stress better. And guess what? Aging is a stress. So, yeah. you know, you're not, only, you're not only increasing things that help proteins keep their three-dimensional structure, but you're increasing antioxidant pathways and mm -hmm. inflammatory, mm -hmm. just That's a right. whole host of things. And autophagy, um, you know, wanting to get, get rid or clear away damaged proteins, damaged cells. And yeah. it's so funny. I hadn't thought about heat shock increasing autophagy before. And, and I was doing some background reading to sort of prepare to, to talk to you. And I came across that paper yeah. and I was like, Oh, this is awesome, yeah. you know, because I, yeah, no, I hadn't thought about Malina it. Melina told me about this before the paper was published. She was sitting in my office telling me about this, and I thought, ah, oh, this is fantastic. You know, here's a mechanism now that really explains why a stress is actually le leading to longer life. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense. Things like heat stress would increase, you know, the, the activity of, of machinery that we have to degrade proteins that are damaged, like the proteasome. Mm -hmm. um, and it would make sense that autophagy, which is another pathway to do that, would also be... Uh, also would be part of that stress response pathway yeah. as well. But um, what's really cool is that this is very relevant for humans, right? Because yeah. humans have heat shock proteins. Yes. And our heat shock proteins are also responsive to heat. Absolutely. So, I mean, this isn't like just understanding worms. It's, it's, it's something that's, you know, being translated um, to humans. I, and, and actually, there's, there's a, a body of literature about pre-stressing organs ahead of surgery that's very interesting and might be relevant to this, hmm. where um, you know there's, there's, there's just better recovery from surgery if there's been a pre-stress. Yeah. Uh, and, and similar uh, literature on, on starvation or fasting ahead of various treatments for chemo cancer, for example, chemo, yeah. yeah. So we might not know all the details there, but absolutely, I think this is really important. It's probably a neglected area, actually. Um, oh, yeah. I think that, you know, Malena's papers brought it back to light that, that these stresses are, are anti-aging and potentially beneficial and we need to think about how you would modify the stress in itself for humans. Um, obviously, we don't want to stress people. Stress is damage. Right. No doubt Too about much it. Is, yeah. but, but can we harness 
that endogenous machinery exactly. that counteracts the stress. And I actually think that's what we're doing with a lot of the chemical compounds that we discover extend lifespan, is that they are either hitting pathways that regulate stress mm -hmm. responses, or they are providing a, a, a sort of, we, we call it, um, damn, I forget what we call it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think some of the, the chemical compounds that we discover that extend lifespan are actually doing this. They're, they're harnessing the endogenous stress responses. Absolutely, absolutely. They're either activating the regulators of stress responses or they're causing a, a segmental stress. So you're seeing a, a limited stress response or only, only parts of the stress response are being activated, but that's enough to give you beneficial effects. Mm -hmm. um, yes, yeah, so, so uh, I, I totally wanted to mention something before you jumped into the compounds and that, that was related to the heat stress, and that is... Uh, there was a study, you may be interested in this, there was a study I read, it was published not too long ago, just a few years ago, where um, people were looking at the heat shock response in humans that were sitting in a sauna. So, of uh -huh. course, that would be, you know, a way that humans can activate their heat shock protein. So, yeah. humans that sat in a 163-degree Fahrenheit sauna for about 30 minutes increased their heat shock proteins, including HSP-70, <laughs> by 50% over baseline. And that was actually sustained for about 48 hours. So that wow. elevation hmm. stayed, stayed for around 48 hours, which is really cool because yeah. it's kind of like a take-home, well, maybe we can activate our heat shock proteins from yeah. the sauna. Yeah. And to sort of go one step further, because I've been sort of um, obsessed with heat shocking in sauna for probably since I started doing research many, many years ago mm -hmm. and uh, was working on heat shock a little bit and mm -hmm. HSF-1 and all this stuff. But... Um, I recently went to Finland last November, and uh, there's a, a, a researcher there. His name is Yari Laukinen, mm -hmm. and he's been doing – he's a car MD, PhD. He's a cardiologist, so a lot of his focus has been on heart health. Okay. And the, the sauna is something that is ubiquitous in Finland. Yeah. I mean, yeah. everyone has a sauna. Everyone. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> so um, he does a lot of research on sauna, and he published a couple of studies that – um, one came out in 2015 where he was looking at all-cause mortality in sauna use. Mm -hmm. So men, this was like 2,000 men co cohort, men that had used the sauna like two to three times a week had uh, a 23% or 24% lower all-cause mortality. Wow. Men that used it four to seven times a week had a 40% lower all-cause mortality huh. compared to men that only used it once a week. So it's like a dose-response effect. Yeah. But yeah. here's where you'll be interested. <laughs> so he just published this paper last December, same co cohort of men. Um, but this time he was looking at Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. And what he found is that men that used this on a two to three times a week had a 20% lower risk of getting Alzheimer's. If they used it four to seven times a week, they had a 60% reduction in Alzheimer's oh. disease risk. Impressive. Which is really kind of cool because it goes with your molecular mechanistic sure. work in, yep. in lower organisms on yep. you know the protein aggregation and the heat shock and the stress response yeah. pathway. No, I spent most of my career just interested in, in, in worms. I mean, I thought if we can solve, solve worm aging, that's fantastic. Right. But over the years, it, this sort of creeping realization that actually what we're doing could be important for people as well, making all these connections to disease and all the model organism people coming to this conclusion, working on flies and mice and, and yeast even, mm -hmm. that these, these are basic mechanisms of aging. They're likely to be playing out in humans as well. And therefore, we should do something with it. this knowledge we've accumulated over the last 25 years. It's really time to try and translate that and, and do something that might be beneficial. Yes. Well, you've, you've, another thing that you've done I think is very relevant is your work on iron. Mm -hmm. So you had looked at how excess dietary iron affects, again, I think protein 
homeostasis? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Well, this was inspired by, by my wife, Julie Anderson's work on Parkinson's disease, where many years ago she, she published a she, series of papers showing how important iron was, uh, causing damage to complex one in the mitochondria through mm -hmm. redox reactions. And then that very specific damage would play out to, to all the way to neuronal death, the dopaminergic neurons. Um, so, so we went back and looked at iron. Basically, we, we had a collaborator, David Kililia, who was able to show that iron levels become elevated during normal aging in the worm. We thought, well, that's interesting because that's what happens in, in human brains and other tissues. And so we did a couple of things. First of all, we fed exogenous iron. So we increased the iron levels in the media, in the diet. That accelerated aging, so it shortened our lifespan, but it also accelerated the accumulation of insoluble proteins. So it accelerated this sort of molecular pathology of aging. Um, and the other thing we did was to uh, feed the worms an, a chelator, an iron chelator. And in that case, the iron levels did not rise during aging, and the worms lived longer, and it protected against protein aggregation oh, wow. as well. That was going to be my next question, actually. Yeah, so, yeah, so all sort of made sense. Right. So the iron that you're feeding these, these worms, um, is, it, is there any way that it could be physiologically relevant to humans, like the levels that you were given them? I, I believe so. I think the experiments in mice with Parkinson's disease, for example, those are around about the levels that you could be exposed to. Uh, and, you know, especially if you're working with metals, you're a welder or, or you know, yeah. certain careers like that. Um, and the epidemiology suggests that indeed that leads to increased risk of Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. So I think coming back to normal aging, I, I wouldn't be surprised if these kind of levels of iron are important. Um, the, the, uh, uh, are no, you familiar with the, um, there's a few gene polymorphisms and one is in the hemato, uh, hemochromatosis gene. Mm -hmm. And people can get hemochromatosis where yep. they're absorbing way too much dietary iron. So yes. that seems like it could be something very relevant if someone's homozygous for those polymorphisms in that gene. It could be, and it'd be interesting to, to look at their aging characteristics and ask whether there's any sort of accelerated aging phenotype there. I know there's all sorts of problems, so I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if, there, if there was. Yeah. And there's also, what's so funny is I didn't think about, you're mentioning Parkinson's and how... Um, how Parkinson's, you know, is associated with iron accumulation and in the mitochondria, and this is this or damaging mitochondria, and this is leading to death of dopaminergic neurons. Yeah. But what I was familiar with was Alzheimer's disease, mm -hmm. and how there's I know there's especially a cluster of polymorphisms. One is in the hemochromatosis gene, and the other one's in the transferrin gene, which binds free mm -hmm. iron mm -hmm. together. Yeah. If you have like this right combination, I don't know how frequent it is in the human population, yeah. it occurs, people actually have a five times increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. Yes. So there's definitely a connection between iron and obviously neurological diseases in general. And other metals as well. So other metals as other well. Metals as yeah, well. you've looked at some, some other metals, right? Like copper. Yeah, and, and copper and manganese. And I think copper is probably critical in, in Alzheimer's disease. And again, this is possibly an underappreciated uh, aspect of, of neurological disease, partly because I, I think that it's difficult to think of ways to, to go after that as a target. You know, so if you say, you know, we're, we're going to manipulate the levels of metals, well, mm -hmm. 
you know, a third or a half of all proteins have metals as part of their active sites. Right. And, and the idea of, of, of treating a metal disorder is, is a bit, little bit difficult to get your head around. And there are very few pharmaceutical companies in the world really go after metals. But, um, you know, I, I don't see why we, we shouldn't be asking the question, you know, can we modulate metals? Can we modulate the activity of metal transporters in particular tissues? Mm-hmm. And can we prevent the elevation of metals in tissues during aging? That, that, that basic prevention of, of, of an elevated levels of metals could be enough to protect, to protect us against disease. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a very important question. You know, people are supplementing with all sorts of vitamins and minerals, and some people are taking way too many, you know. Exactly. You know, iron is something that I don't, I think, you know, people should get their their iron levels measured. They shouldn't just be blindly taking an iron supplement. I mean, because that could be completely dangerous. Absolutely. And, um, you know, with these gene polymorphisms, like, I always, it's sort of a pet topic of mine, so I'm sorry if I'm (laughs) going off on this, but, you know, it's, We've we've sort of evolved in different regions, you know, across the the globe, and there's different you know food availability, different minerals in the soil, things like mm-hmm, that. And so mm-hmm. we've sort of like depending on, at least this is the thought, depending on how much you know minerals were in the soil and all you know what type of food we had available, we sort of you know acquired certain mutations that became more frequent in the population yeah. that became polymorphism. So it may be some people, and you can see this when you look. If you look at you know a, a lot of different gene polymorphisms, a lot of them do have to do with minerals. They have to mm-hmm. do with vitamin intake, mm-hmm. and so all these things are sort of different in people. And so yeah. I think it is very relevant to look at how this affects aging, you know, for multiple reasons. So I'm actually glad that very true. Very someone's true. doing it. Of course, the pharmaceutical drugs are always thinking of it from a different angle, and, mm-hmm. and yeah, uh, that may may not be the way. But um, it's all it's all very important. But sort of to, to kind of go on to the next topic, you've also looked at vitamins. And I was very excited about your most recent, or not most recent, but a recent publication of mm-hmm. yours that had to do with one of my favorite vitamins, which <laughs> is not actually a vitamin. It actually is a hormone. A hormone, yeah. But uh, vitamin D. Mm-hmm. So um, you'd found some really interesting findings with vitamin D. Yeah, we were, we were looking at uh, a, a C. elegans strain that was engineered to express A-beta, so human A-beta. Mm-hmm. And when you do this in the worm, you, you see these tiny aggregates form, like, like mini plaques, and something about that is toxic, and the animals uh, become paralyzed. So this is in their muscle cells? It's in They're, their muscle cells, okay. although you can do the same in neurons in whatever. as well. Okay, but so. it, it always makes the worm sick. So this was a strain created by Chris Link in, in Colorado, and uh, we were looking for chemical compounds that suppressed the paralysis. So very easy, you look down right. the microscope if the worms are still crawling around after you've turned on the expression of the A-beta, you've got something that's protecting against the, the aggregation process. And Carla Mark, a postdoc in the lab, conducted a screen on natural products. We, we look at all sorts of different libraries. This happened to be a natural product library. And came to the office and said, hey, vitamin D. And we thought, well, we're not going to work on that because there's a paper because, every day on vitamin yeah. D. And surely... People have been studying vitamin D for decades. There's nothing new to learn about vitamin D. But the thing that intrigued us was when we started to look at the epidemiological literature and realized that when you're deficient, when humans are deficient in vitamin D, there are an elevated risk for many adult cancers, but also neurological disease. And if you look at the spectrum of diseases, it almost looks like many of the chronic diseases of late life. Mm-hmm. So I thought, this can't be. Is this possible that, that vitamin D deficiency is really some sort of accelerated aging? Is that, is that what's going on here in, in people? So I thought, well, we may as well follow this because there's not a lot in the literature about A-beta and protein confirmation and aggregation and, and, and so on. So 
we, we did many, many other experiments and, and found that indeed vitamin D had a, an effect, a widespread effect on the proteome. So it was preventing protein insolubility, this age-related rise in protein insolubility across hundreds of different kinds of proteins in different organelles in the cell and different tissues. So it's essentially helping the proteins age better. Exactly, yeah, it's suppressing this, this, this phenotype of aging. Um, and then we, we, we combine treatment with compounds or feeding with vitamin D in this case with different genetic backgrounds. And so we, we discovered that there was a requirement for certain genes, transcription factors. And these are transcription factors that normally respond to stress. And now we're back to stress. Uh, and it seems like vitamin D somehow is able to elicit the endogenous defense systems, detoxification systems. So it's turning on those systems. Like NRF2 re regulated? Right, that's right. Yeah, yeah the oxidation, oxidative stress transcription factor NRF2. It requires NRF2 in the worm to see the beneficial effects on, on the, the, the proteome. How weird. So we're, we're following that up. But all this was new um, for vitamin D. Um, we began to show this data to some clinicians, uh, experts in, in vitamin D metabolism in bone and so on. And they were really excited by this, which is always nice when you study worms. Suddenly you've got a clinician excited. And I think they were excited because at the heart of it, you could see how an effect on a global process like protein aggregation, which is associated with lots of different diseases, could explain perhaps why vitamin D deficiency is associated with neurological disease and other diseases. So it, it almost like was giving them a handle on a potential mechanism that might explain a lot of what's going on in the epidemiological data. Um, and we thought it was cool because when we talk about vitamin D to our colleagues or our friends or the general public, there's a response. People are interested in it. It's, 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 it's cheap. It's readily available. Many people are already thinking about it in their own health. Mm -hmm. And um, so it makes a connection between the, you know, the curiosity research we do in, in worms and actually people's lives. So we're, we're enjoying working on it. Very cool. Well, I have a thousand questions about that. So, I mean, obviously, obviously the question you probably get from every single person that you talk to about this research, and that is, okay, so do the worms make vitamin D. We make vitamin D in our skin from UVB radiation. And Correct. I always thought of the worms as being soil dwelling, but you mentioned at the beginning in the podcast that they actually are on fruit. Right. So potentially they are exposed. They, 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 they probably are exposed to light. Now, worms will run away from, from light. Uh, if you turn the UV light on in the microscope, uh -huh. they'll, they'll move. Um, but they probably are exposed to a certain amount of light. Now, do they make it in the wild? We don't know. Um, what we do know is that if we feed D3, which is the metabolite you buy at the, the drugstore. Mm -hmm. D3 is converted into 125-dihydroxyvitamin D. So there's two steps, one in the kidney, one in the liver in, in mammals, that, that, that does that conversion. Mm -hmm. Now, we know if we feed the worms D3, they are able to make the 125-vitamin D. So there, we think that there's conserved metabolism between mammals and worms. That suggests that maybe the worms are really making it in the wild as well. They've got the apparatus, they've got the, the, the enzymes. We also know that they have the precursor to vitamin D that we have in our skin that we turn into D3. They've got tons of that in their tissues normally. We actually feed the worms cholesterol. Really? As part of oh, the they have 7-dehydroxy cholesterol. They do, they have 7-dehydroxy cholesterol in large amounts. So our, our expectation is, and we've never really been able to think how to do this experimentally, but if we took worms from the lab and took them outside into the sunlight, we might be able to detect them making 125. Well, why don't you just, ha there's a couple of experiments I would think about is one, shining UVB on them, mm -hmm. right? And seeing if that works, because yep. that's how we do it. Yeah. So UVB radiation hits, hits the seven 
uh, dehydrocholesterol, and then um, that's converted into vitamin D3 that gets in, transported in the bloodstream, and then two hydroxylation steps later, you get the active hormone. Right. So um, that could be one thing you could do. The other thing is, did you guys try feeding 125-hydroxy vitamin D? We did, actually. We, we've had a whole bunch of different metabolites of, of vitamin D. And basically, any metabolite that can be converted into the active form is beneficial. Okay, cool. So that sort of makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, you'll be interested to know, if you haven't already seen this literature, because I also have published on vitamin D and very obsessed oh, with it. Um, are you familiar with the work that was uh, published, geez, must have been like 10 years ago now, but mm -hmm. on the vitamin D receptor knockout animals? Yes, 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 Have yes. you seen those animals? I have, I've never <laughs> seen them personally, but I've certainly seen read about of them. them. <laughs> well, at four, four months of age, they're both, they, you know, if you have normal wild type mouse and you knock out the vitamin D receptor and then you look four months, they look the same age. And then at eight months, yeah. that mouse looks like a progeria. I mean, right. it doesn't even look like an, a, a two and a half year old mouse would normally look. It looks like yeah. some sort of progeria kind of phenotype where there's no hair the skin is all wrinkled their wow. organs are all like shutting down i mean it seems like a very progeria type of phenotype yeah i don't know if that's certainly the the, the papers suggest that and there, there are specific measures that are absolutely in keeping yeah. with normal aging there's probably a lot of other things going on as well i imagine that yes. when you really seriously mess up vitamin d metabolism yeah. it's going to have lots of effects like, but like, given yeah but absolutely it was very exciting when we went back and looked at those papers and thought oh this this could make sense Right. And there's also, like, if you look at the, the epi stud, epidemiology studies in humans, um, we know that, for example, there was a very large meta-analysis, like 33 different studies that were uh, looked at, ranging from, you know, the year 1966 all the way to 2013. So broad range mm -hmm. of, of time, um, looking at people's blood levels of 25-hydroxyvitamin D, which mm -hmm. is the precursor right. and it's the most stable form. And uh, what the research, the meta-analysis found is that people that had blood levels between 40 and 60 nanograms per milliliter had, like, the lowest all-cause mortality mm -hmm, compared mm -hmm. to those that, you know, had lower vitamin D levels right. um, or even really, really high ones. But um, we also, there's some randomized controlled trials that have looked at um, giving people high-dose vitamin D supplementation, like 4,000 IUs a day, mm -hmm. and it improved cognition, mm -hmm. whereas low-dose did not, like, 400 IUs a day would be considered yeah. low-dose. That did not, had no effect. Right. So... I think there's certainly, there's a lot of, you know, evidence, associative studies, and also there's some randomized controlled trials that really does point to the fact that vitamin D is regulating the aging process. It's been shown to regulate telomere length. I think mm -hmm. that it's absolutely mm -hmm. probably regulating the aging process. And this whole, like, protein aggregation angle is uh, new to me. I didn't know that it really played a role in that, and that's super cool because I do know that protein aggregation plays a role in the aging process. Right, right. So it yeah. kind of... You know. it's, it's beginning to join up into a, 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 a sensible yeah. story. Now, that said, um, we should be cautious. And I, I'm, I'm not an MD and I'm not prescribing vitamin D for anyone. Um, although it's likely that if you're deficient, you really would benefit from, from coming up into, into a sensible range. Mm -hmm. um, at high doses, and these are usually very high doses as a result of some accident, but obviously it causes mineralization mm -hmm. and that, that can be serious. And so... Um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, I think it's up to people to talk to their physicians about it, to get tested perhaps for levels. It's probably almost completely harmless to be taking a, an additional thousand units a day on top of whatever's in your diet, but really talk to your doctor about it. I think that's excellent advice. And, and um, you know, most people don't get their vitamin D levels measured. And I think that's exactly what people should do. Mm -hmm. You know, they should get their D levels measured before and after supplementation, yeah. both. Yeah. You wanna, I mean, it's it's not a hard test to do. Um, if you have health insurance, it's it's covered. Yeah. If you don't, it's still really cheap. It's I've done it. You know, mm -hmm. it's 
it's it's not an expensive test and it's very worth it. So yeah. I, I agree that it's it's very important to, to get your levels measured and you don't want to just blindly start taking like Yeah, especially 20, if you're a C elegant. <laughs> Okay, so the last thing that I want to talk to you about that is um, really super cool that you're doing uh, is you're involved. I know that the NIH set up this program that was like this intervention testing program yeah. in, in mice, right? That's right. And they were looking at compounds that could potentially affect longevity in mice. But in parallel, you're doing something really cool in worms. Yeah, I mean, the, the mouse program has been very successful. Rapamycin was mm-hmm. the, the drug that emerged as being robust and reproducible at all three, three sites where the, these experiments were conducted in mice. Um, but a few years later, I guess it was a feeling that maybe we can accelerate this if we utilize the speed of the worm and also utilize the great genetic diversity in Cenorhabditis itself. Mm-hmm. Cenorhabditis is found all over the world, has incredibly large genetic diversity. And the thinking there is that, well, if you can find compounds that work in not only different labs to the same extent, but also different genetic backgrounds, then you've maybe got a high-value candidate to then take forward into a more expensive mouse study. Cool. So, yeah, so I, you know, it made perfect sense to us. We were very fortunate to be funded with Monica Driscoll and Patrick Phillips, the other two investigators involved in the study. It's a large study with lots of people in all of our labs. And um, we, were, uh, we sat down for the first time to talk about doing worm aging experiments and to work out how are we going to do this so that we're all doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And we were horrified, absolutely horrified, to, to see the differences between labs and protocols. <laughs> and these should be the simplest experiments in the world. You take worms, you put them on an agar plate, you squirt a compound on there, mm-hmm. you watch them every day until they all die. It, it, it's the simplest thing in biology, except we were all making our plates differently, growing our bacterial food differently, ho- handling our worms differently. Everything was different. Yeah. So it actually took us over a year to, to standardize the protocols and start to see similar results, even without treatment, just growing worms and, and measuring aging. It took us about a year to really get that down. Um, but then we had this wonderful platform where we could go in and say, well, let's test some of the compounds that are already out there and published, and let's test some compounds that have been looked at in the mouse studies and, and, and ask, are they robust and reproducible? And, and, and the, the results are mixed, to be honest. Um, we do, we are able to find uh, reproducible uh, and robust compounds that work in lots of different genetic backgrounds and extend lifespan in all three labs. Uh, but we find also a great de- degree of variation and different kinds of variation that we'd never imagined before. So uh, I think it's proven to us that this is difficult stuff, the, doing this, and we really need to pay great attention to the protocols that we're using and be able to communicate those and convey them to other laboratories if we expect other people to be able to reproduce our mm-hmm. findings. Yeah. And what sort of compounds are you, what are like, so there's like a top 10 compounds that you were, you were looking at? Um, yeah, I mean, we, we selected 10, j- j- as, a, as I said, just to get started. And those included some compounds that we had published, including thioflavin T, which is a, a compound that binds amyloids. And we, we hoped, and we think it does, uh, promote protein homeostasis as a result of this. Um, it also turns on stress responses, as we were talking about earlier. So thiotea was one that we felt was going to be uh, robust. It turned out it was. It was robust and reproducible. Um, so that extended lifespan of, of C. elegans. Yeah, C. elegans. And all the uh, others. C. briggsi, another species. Okay. C. tropicalis, yet another species. Wow. Um, and there were some compounds that did really well in Elegans, where they were first published, but actually didn't then do well in, in Briggsy. So there could be many, many reasons for that, but it was kind of what we expected, that different genetic backgrounds will respond differently to, to mm-hmm. a compound. 
Um, and we found compounds that really didn't do anything at all under our protocol. Now that's not to say they don't work in, in someone else's hands in their protocol, but now we ha I think we've got a deeper understanding of the, the major effects of just subtle changes in the way we do experiments. So they don't work in, in their hands, but that doesn't mean they're, they're not promising candidates. It just means we need to think more about what conditions they're, they're going to work in. It seems like the, the, the compounds that are working in multiple different species are probably, you know, the best candidates in my, in my opinion. But, you know, the ones that are at least working in some species are also seems, I think alpha-ketoglutarate was another one that yeah. was in some. Yeah, it's doing really well. I mean, I, it's, it's great when you, you just, you go to a paper, uh, you know, really great paper that you like, and you just are able to reproduce it. It's, it's fantastic. Um, yeah. So alpha-ketoglutarate was one of those candidates. And um, yeah, I mean, I think we also want to investigate why compounds do not work in particular strains, because that could tell us something about genetic specific responses to compounds. Yeah. And this may become important as you move towards, towards humans, where there may be particular metabolic pathways that we want to avoid engaging, or, or uh, we might have genetic information on that would, would suggest as we, we shouldn't be treating this group of people. Right, exactly. Personalized medicine sort of... Yeah, you know, this, exactly. This interaction between genes and compounds, and there's right. lots of interactions between drug metabolism, like and uh, the way we metabolize drugs, and you know the, the genes that we have. So that's what Absolutely. actually makes sense. But so the next step then is once you, so if you have these like, these compounds that seem very promising that you've identified in, in in the various species of worms, is that do you like communicate to the mouse community and they sort of potentially we'll look at those. Absolutely. I mean, we, we will publish everything positive and negative with respect to lifespan effects. Also health span. We're looking at health span. Um, but obviously, how do you do that in worms? So what's well, that? you know, that's, that's a big debate right now as to how to do that. It, of course, the worms are changing their behaviours as they age. They're becoming slower. They're eating less. Um, they, they cease reproduction. Eventually, they become paralysed, essentially not moving at all on the plate. So there's plenty of things to look at. Also, their tissues are changing, and we, we, you can look at the tissues okay. themselves. Yeah. Um, and really, we're just kind of sorting out what, what the best parameters might be right now. Uh, resistance to stress, for example, goes down with age. And so maybe we just look at resistance to stress at multiple ages and ask if compounds are able to maintain that resistance. Yeah. What about compounds that are able to really work well when you stress the animal? But So let's say, let's say you have a compound that is, you know, something that's like a xenohormetic kind of compound, mm -hmm. which you may see a very small effect on lifespan just under normal, normal yeah. aging conditions. But what if you were to like stress them, you add some sort of oxidative stress or something, and then you see a really robust, like do you think you might yeah. be missing some of those sort of compounds? Uh, that I, I believe so. And I think that they might come out of our, our next series of experiments where even where we have a negative result on lifespan, we will look at health span. We'll look at stress responses okay. and, and ask, well, is this something that's really making the animal healthier for longer, which of course we're interested in, but right. maybe just fails to increase the maximum lifespan. Can I give you a, a can I put a bit in for a yeah. compound you should look at? Yeah. Sulforaphane. Okay. Sulforaphane is, um, do, are you familiar with sulforaphane? Nope. To, okay. No, nope. please tell All me. right. So sulforaphane is the is a is a xenohormetic compound it is produced in cruciferous plants so mm -hmm. you know anything from broccoli to kale to cauliflower oh, yeah. yes i remember now so it is produced when the plant is you know crushed or broken and it comes in contact with an enzyme called myrosinase and mm -hmm. it, it then you produce sulforaphane sulforaphane is to my knowledge the most potent dietary naturally occurring dietary activator of NRF2 pathway. Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of reading about it. Um, mm -hmm. I've interviewed Dr. Jed Fahey, who's at Johns Hopkins, 
who worked with Talalay, who sort of discovered that it was the mm. you know activator of this whole NRF2 keep one pathway. And mm-hmm. um, so I've, I'm sort of really familiar with the field. And I was doing a lot of reading trying to figure out, you know, because in humans, there's been a lot of clinical studies in humans showing it lowers inflammation, biomarkers of mm-hmm. inflammation in humans. It lowers, you know, biomarkers of oxidative stress in blood cells. It mm-hmm. affects glutathione, just mm. everything, right? And um, all sorts of cancer prevention studies, just, you know, Alzheimer's disease it, in animals. I mean, lots of animal mm. studies. And, but I couldn't really find any, any lifespan studies. And I was looking specifically for like, Drosophila or Skelligans yeah, or sure. something. And I came across this paper that was published in, um, like, red flower beetle or something. I, I'd mm. never heard of it. Anyways, they fed these red flower beetles sulforaphane. And it extended their lifespan. Mm. And then they did some oxidative stress. And it really robustly extended mm. their lifespan. Wow. So... I would be really interested to see if it does. I mean, I would, I would bet that it does something in C. elegans. So that's very cool. So sulforaphane. Okay, and actually, I will send you an email. That, please do. And actually, you know, we we are really interested in hearing stories like this, and and we want other scientists and other people to make suggestions to the consortium for for testing compounds. Um, we have another ten that are in process right now, but this is going to continue for the next few years, and we, we hope to get through hundreds of compounds eventually. So cool. we're, we're looking for it's suggestions. Definitely one. Yeah, I would, I would love to see. I mean, really love to see it. So that would be super cool. Well, Gordon, I really um, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with me about your research and Certainly. you know how you're you're you know trying to look at all these various you know pathways as they relate to aging and protein homeostasis and these compounds that may extend health span and lifespan all very relevant to us you know down the line hope so so um pleasure talking with you today nice to talk to you and if people want to find you they can find you at the buck institute for aging absolutely yep and uh, if you want to learn more about your research you'll, you'll be there that's right thank you very much bada bing bada boom that's an episode thanks for listening For those of you that have done 23andMe genetic testing and are interested from a non-medical, informational-only standpoint in learning about whether you might have some of the specific combinations of gene polymorphisms discussed with Gordon in the transferrin gene and the hemochromatosis gene, you can actually find out what your genotype is by running the raw data through the tool on my website. It is very easy to do and very quick. Learn more about that at foundmyfitness.com forward slash genetics. That's G-E-N-E-T-I-C-S, genetics. From there, you can also learn about certain genes involved in fat metabolism, vitamin D metabolism, omega-3 fatty acid metabolism, vitamin A metabolism, and more. Lots of really cool stuff, and I plan on continuing to add even more great reports on there as time goes on. It will only get better. So make sure to check that out once again at foundmyfitness.com forward slash genetics. If you're interested in receiving notifications about the very best podcasts, expanded show notes, articles, and other information I publish nowhere else, also make sure to go sign up for my email newsletter, also found at my website. And finally, if you love this podcast or any of the cool stuff brought to you under the Found My Fitness umbrella, you can learn how to support it for as much or as little as you like, even that metaphorical monthly cup of coffee or bundle of kale, by visiting foundmyfitness.com forward slash crowdsponsor. That's foundmyfitness.com forward slash C-R-O-W-D-S-P-O-N-S-O-R, crowdsponsor. Until next time, may your telomeres be long and your DNA repair enzymes be strong. Dr. Rhonda Patrick, over and out.